Space cave. Long ago, there was a planet called Earth, and conversations took place upon it. This is one of those conversations. Well, I, I, I always want to start with saying welcome, but I'm in your home, so thank you for welcoming <laughs> me here in beautiful Tempe, Arizona, Steve Hillegeist. Well, you're welcome. <laughs> thank you. Beautiful. Lots of colors. I might take some pictures without uh, divulging too much of your whereabouts and or personal information. Yeah, no worries. Okay. Yeah. I'll share that on the website. And and then you're a professor, but I and I remember when we met and chatted before, it was a, a term that in my head became like forensic accounting. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, the accounting's right, not the forensic. <laughs> okay, yeah, I remember thinking like, that's those <laughs> words CSI, don't say. <laughs> you know, books or something like that. So um, I'm a professor of accounting at uh, WB Carey, but what I teach is called managerial accounting. Uh-huh. And that's really kind of figuring out what your costs are internally, and then how to use those to make decisions, evaluate performance, and provide incentives. So it's it's actually the the first thing I tell my students is, I'm not an accountant. Mm-hmm. But then I tell them I'm more of an applied economist, and then any excitement they might have had goes away. But <laughs> <laughs> well, see, that to me would excite me, because economics, as I get older, I find just embarrassing that it's not forced into people's knowledge base. Like from an early age of, you know, you're taking, oh, it's neat, you're taking science, and you're in third grade, and you're taking a little bit, and then you get into bio. I think it should be there early, early on, even if it's a sub category of math or just an idea of knowing about like hey this is kind of what dictates to a large degree the world as we live in it you should know all of this stuff yeah i I agree but i'm I'm biased on that (laughs) but i mean i think it's super helpful to you know it's it's a limited framework but it is a useful framework to view the world right and Mm -hmm. so when you're thinking about buying or selling a car or a house if you sort of think, what are the economics, what are the incentives, right? You can probably be much smarter about this stuff. And mm-hmm. let's just say you're less likely to be taken advantage of that if you don't know this, right? And if you yeah. sort of build in maybe some things about, you know, household finance and investing and, and things like that, I think, you know, a lot of people would avoid some of those costly mistakes. When you, and so if you have one end costly mistakes and then say at the further end you have people that understand it well enough to then, oh, I have my accounts offshore in the Caymans or I hide <laughs> stuff. I avoid, I live just six days in one, six months in one day in this location. So I avoid paying state taxes here where I always live otherwise. Things like that where you're like, well, you understand economics in a way that seems to be counterintuitive and hurtful to the whole economic structure. Yeah, I think what you're talking about is true anytime you have any regulations or laws, right? They're sort of, uh, if you have enough money, you can figure it out or you can pay someone to figure out how to avoid or minimize that. And Mm -hmm. whether that's, you know, pushing the boundary uh, of what's legal, right? Living six months and a day in Nevada or someplace like that. Or it's the secret accounts in the Cayman Islands, which is definitely across the line. Mm -hmm. Um, You're always going to have that. And, and, you know, I think 
you know, I don't know of any great solutions <laughs> around it, but I think, you know, the more you make things transparent, both uh, at companies and individual levels, the harder it is to get away with that stuff. Mm -hmm. um, so I remember, this was a while back, but Italy did this short run experiment where they made everyone, single person's tax records publicly available. Whoa. And then they were like, oh, this doctor who has a Ferrari, you know, has 20,000 euros of income a year. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, all these people with their, their yachts and things like that. And, mm -hmm. and the neighbors were ratting each other out and, you know, you're not paying your taxes. Yeah. And then I think they realized that there would be some sort of civil war revolution <laughs> and they quickly <laughs> cut that off. But, but it, I mean, it goes to show you like, you know, people will monitor you, and the more information that's out there, generally, it's going to constrain your behavior, even if you're willing to push those ethical boundaries. Yeah, I, <clears throat> I don't know. I think it, the psychology involved in it does that take a large portion of like, well, mixing this economic model with the nature of humans, and people always want to say, well, we're something else. We're we're better. We're more ethical, logical and kind and honest in reality like you're not everyone will <laughs> cheat just a little bit at something the tax returns i think are a good one so how do, how do you implement them without i think ideally if you have a small enough society you potentially like we, we don't need police or, or the irs or people to monitor we just can trust your word as you get society gets bigger people are like no one's noticing me i can cheat just a little yeah, I mean, I think if you had some very small homogeneous society, that kind of works. But I, I imagine even in those places, there were people who were viewed <laughs> <laughs> more or less uh, uh, favorably. And so, yeah, I mean, we clearly are in a very large, very diverse uh, society. And that, that clearly, I think, is leading to a lot of our problems. Mm -hmm. um, but I do think, you know, to the extent you can get people focused on common benefits and and kind of what they're getting from you know society in general and maybe the government in particular then that could maybe help reframe this conversation i mean it's that famous sign that you would see from the tea party you know hand you know government hands off my medicare <laughs> <laughs> not quite realizing that medicare is a government program mm -hmm. and things along that nature so do you spend much time because i i try to only really weigh in and as with everyone i probably overstep and end up talking about things that i don't know about but i especially with the like economic side of things or just like people get into free market and capitalism versus oh, we don't like socialism we're not founded on that and i feel like i don't know enough as to how you would implement all those things we obviously have a mix of all of them but are you someone with such a vast knowledge you spend a lot of time like if you i could figure this out uh, I wouldn't quite go that far, but I, I have spent a lot of time, you know, and, and years in school studying this stuff. Mm -hmm. And um, I've always been interested in policy, right? Mm -hmm. So my first post-college job was living in Washington, D.C., right, and reading the Washington Post, where, you know, you would see how these laws and bills would develop and the horse trading that would go on and how it would change from one version to the next. And mm -hmm. it just kind of got me hooked. And so... You know, when I do my research, it, you know, my incentives are that I need to publish in these top academic uh, accounting journals, these um, academic journals. And, you know, there's kind of certain rules and, and um, paradigms you need to follow. But the most interesting in, of the papers that I've done and that I read are ones that have at least some 
implications for policy or regulations or what the FASB is doing with the accounting rules and, and things mm-hmm. along that nature. So, you know, that that's always kind of been of interest to me, and I, I tend to follow uh, both the business news and kind of kind of these national policy type issues fairly closely. And so mm. the last few years, I've really gotten into healthcare type issues um, because, you know, in some sense, if, if a, you know, I'm trying to teach my students to be better leaders and make better decisions and think about things more holistically. And, you know, if they screw up, well, the company shareholders get hurt. Mm-hmm. Maybe their customers or something, or their bonuses aren't as big. But you know, at the end of the day, there's some other company that will take advantage of the mistakes. But mm-hmm. when you get into kind of the healthcare aspects, you know, the mistakes literally can cost people's lives, right? Or they can't afford the medicine, they can't afford the health insurance, uh, whatever the aspects are. And so I think um, just kind of what I've learned. You know, I wouldn't say, you know, formally, but almost casually you're dealing, you know, a lot of my students in the executive MBA program are doctors and hospital administrators and people like that. It's just there's so much room for improvement in mm-hmm. the healthcare system, both yeah. from they don't they don't have the information that you would normally have in another type of business. Yeah. Just because it, you know, a lot of them are nonprofit or they just haven't been in that mindset. When you're referring to information, you're talking about the kind of the, the, the work you guys would do to really detail, like, here's the spending, here's where it's being allotted, here's your in and out. Yeah. So, for example, almost no hospitals out there know what it costs for, say, a knee surgery. I've talked to like surgeons. They have no idea, right? They know kind of what the market charges. Mm -hmm. And they they kind of have some idea, all right, we'll probably making money on that or not. But they don't actually know, are they making a 200% profit margin or a 2%? Does some of that come from, well, we get, you know, screwed, for lack of a better word, on insurance claims or things like that. So based on the ones we miss out on, we overcharge, so therefore it balances out, and then it becomes this weird sliding scale. And I've heard people say, like, well, the single payer, that's where we would have an itemized, everyone would be paying the same amount, that kind of thing. Is that like a romanticized notion, or is there something to that? I I think somewhat. I I don't think, you know, if, if, if there's any place where they're probably getting underpaid, it's probably from government reimbursements, mm-hmm. right? Or at least something close to the cost. They tend to make you know money on the insurance, and it's a constant battle, and that's why you have no price transparency because whatever they agree with with one company is proprietary, right? Yeah. And so, so hopefully, you know, they're trying to get a better deal with another company and vice versa. Um, and so it all kind of starts with these list prices, which if you and I go in there with no insurance, that's what they're going to try to stick us with. Yeah. And then essentially they set those very high and then everything's sort of a sliding scale from Say that. I have gold bars though and I go, because I sometimes will ask surgeons this, like, hey, if I had gold bars and I came in, and there are some sports facilities particularly that they just work with high-end athletes, they don't deal with insurance, you just pay cash for, and so they would do that, And the, but the prices I feel like, are, it's like going to a, Porsche dealership or something. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. You're going to get the premium product and you're, you're not yeah. going to bother with the insurance, uh, mm-hmm. which would pay a fraction. But all of those things as you were talking about, um, they have to do with the revenue side of things, kind of what prices they charge. Okay. But given that you're going to get a certain price from this insurance company and that insurance company, they don't know how much it actually costs them to deliver that oh, knee surgery. Yeah, yeah. Right. Because they do this crazy backwards thing. They sort of say, on average, let's say costs are 
80% of revenue, mm-hmm. right? So they're making pretty good money. Yeah. So they'll just say, hey, we're getting 10,000 for that knee surgery. Our cost must be 8,000. Because <laughs> that's what it is on average for the thousands of different services yeah. we provide, right? Uh-huh. And so they know, have no idea whether the cost might be 4,000 or 15,000. Yeah. Um, Which, so that's, so- that's what I'm kind of what I deal with when I teach and kind of the systems, information systems I'm talking about is you need to be able to track that so you can say, hey, is 10,000 the right to be charging or does it need to be 12 or should it be six? And how to give an example of that, where, where I'm thinking, I'm probably off on this, but is you're just looking at that room and then you're picturing the gas going in, the person paid to like be an anesthesiologist, maybe then the tools that are being used, the lights in the room, the the space for the room, everyone that's standing around being an assistant in some way, the clothes they're wearing potentially, and on and on. Do you find yourself like itemizing every little thing in the room and where? how does it stop? Where do you get to like, this is a negligible cost? So you have a good sense in that you can keep doing this on some sense forever. Okay. Right. But you, you at least, what I advise my students and I think is, is kind of reasonable practice is that you sort of start with some of the basic differences, right? So, you know, take the time in the surgical room, right? Where you need the suite of people and machines and things like that. Mm-hmm. At the very least, start tracking, well, how long are they in the room? Do I need three nurses or two nurses, right? Those are going to be big differences across different types of surgeries, yeah. let's say. And if you're not even tracking that, right, you have no clue, <laughs> right? And so the first thing is to get at least a little bit of a clue, right? Mm-hmm. Track the major sources of kind of variation in these costs, yeah. right? And once you see that, often, you know, the, we do these cases, right? The lights go on and they're like, holy shit. <laughs> <laughs> we, we thought this was where we're making all our money. It actually turns out because these things you know, are much more complex or labor intensive that we're actually losing our money ah. where we thought it was best, mm-hmm. right? And these other surgeries, um, you know, because a lot of hospitals, especially teaching hospitals, they like the complex cases. Those are the interesting ones. That's where kind of people get trained up. Mm-hmm. But it's these kind of high volume, simple procedures that are actually generally pretty low cost. Yeah. And there they actually make a ton of money, right? And on these kind of very interesting to them, but complicated cases, that's where they actually end up losing because they consume so much of these other resources that they're not tracking. Makes sense. Yeah. yeah. Um, for example, you know, one of the things I try to say is, you know, go back to the surgical center. Think about the capacity of that thing, mm-hmm. right? So what people will do to the extent they do any of this, right? They'll sort of say, here's the cost of the space and the equipment and all these other things, right? Mm-hmm. And then they'll just divide it up by the number of, let's say, hours of surgery. Mm-hmm. Okay. So the problem with that is if they're not very busy, yeah. right, the cost per surgery is really high. Yeah. Um, and so you're in sense charging people for resources they don't use. Right. Think about if you're in town, you're staying at a hotel, mm-hmm. right? And you say it's going to be a hundred bucks a night. Okay. Okay. That's fine. And then, you know, about 10 o'clock at night, the manager comes by and says, Hey, there's a bunch of empty rooms on the hallway. Mm-hmm. You owe me another hundred bucks. <laughs> <laughs> right? Where in reality, most businesses would say you would go down and say, Hey, I'm going to go elsewhere. Yeah. Uh, Cause I know you're empty unless you give me a discount. Mm-hmm. Right. So they get this view that their costs are really high. 
if they're not very busy, if they've got lots of excess capacity. Mm -hmm. And then what they tend to do is say, oh, I have to charge a really high price because my costs are really high. Yeah. And you can get into this vicious cycle um, where you where it appears your costs are out of control, where it's just an artifact of the fact um, that you've got lots of unused capacity. That's a, such right? a, I mean, so if you get that insight, the way you think about managing your business, right, totally flips and totally mm -hmm. changes. The, the prestigious hospital in Los Angeles is Cedar sinai It's like near Beverly Hills. They're always busy and they're all, it's, you know, they they do ads for things of like, you know, hey, we're here for you. Come come here for your spinal surgery. Come here for that, which I find is a little odd. You know, right. I don't hear a lot of other hospitals competing for ad space. But then you go in there and they really are. Anyone you talk to, like, it's incredible in here. But maybe having like the motel or the hotel consider, you know, the comparison there of just like, we can operate with one or two rooms being occupied and keeping the lights on on the rest of them because we do charge such a high rate because we do have such a like a, a prestige about us. Yeah. How, how do you regulate that? How do you control something like that with, with other companies and et cetera? Well, I think in, in some sense, competition is going to be the mm -hmm. one that does that. But, you know, even if you're Cedar sinai right, and uh, there's probably lots of competition for your resources um, or you just want to make more money. Mm -hmm. So let's say they, because of all this advertisement and their reputation, they're pretty full, mm -hmm. right? Well, then the idea has to go to what, what is my constraint, right? As, do I, so I've got three surgical centers or something, or if they're being run all the time mm -hmm. and you're turning away business, then at some point you either have to say, do I stick with this? Do I build another one? Yeah. Right. And that's going to entail a big expansion in other parts. But until that point, you also have to think about, should we be pushing spinal surgeries or hip surgeries? Mm -hmm. Right. Because they're going to take, you know, they have different costs, but they also take very different amount of times in the surgical center. Kind of goes back to what you're saying about like, if we could make, find the sweet spot, hip surgeries are big and expensive, but we can churn them out. Exactly. So, you know, yeah, if we can just hustle a bunch of that makes exactly. Sense. And so you want to think about maximizing, in some sense, your profit per hour of surgical time. Mm -hmm. um, and again, if you don't have that data, normally you just say, "Hey, my margins on a spinal surgery are are bigger. Mm -hmm. Let's go with those." But if those spinal surgeries are taking eight hours, you know, and the hip surgery takes an hour, it's probably the reverse. So, right? so and so, in some sense, you're just you're, you're wasting opportunities um, in other places. You're wasting resources. Well, part of that that I, I think is funny is like, it's so weird that economically, and with the umbrella of that being the, you know, the conversation at large, like, have you read Atlas Shrugged? A long time ago. <laughs> so people, the people that still hold on to that and think like, that's a perfect one-to-one -one ratio. This is how everything should work. They very, uh, I think she very purposefully leaves out healthcare. Because it is the most murky and ambiguous, and with the Italy thing, say like, or say your students, you know, start approaching hospitals and saying like, mm -hmm. we we can really itemize and quantify costs of everything. Would it be the equivalent of a hospital had their business out in the open and going like, no, don't tell them that. Don't tell them <laughs> like, we need to make that money. Yeah, different hospitals are experimenting with different ways. So, mm -hmm. so there aren't many, but some have really started down this path and, and the results are pretty interesting. So one of the things that's going on is with the, the healthcare reforms and things like that is instead of saying, all right, we're going to 
you know, treat this insurance company's patients and every time we do something, we're going to bill, mm-hmm. right? They're going to say, pay us so much a month for each patient and we're going to take care of their health care needs, yeah. right? Or if they have this condition, you're going to get a set fee, mm-hmm. okay? So in that case, it becomes incredibly important for the hospital to know what its costs are. Yeah. Because if they screw that up, right, they could literally go under. Mm-hmm. Um, either they're not going to get the revenues because they're overcharging, or if they undercharge something, right, they're just going to hemorrhage money. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> and so those those companies really kind of realize, you know, how important this is because, like, literally their futures are on the line if they screw this up. There's another interesting hospital chain in based in Utah called Intermountain Healthcare. And they had this early visionary doctor, and he was kind of focused on two things. One, trying to standardize care, mm-hmm. right? So he would sort of say, they would try to get together and say, for this disease or diagnostic, this is the best treatment normally, mm-hmm. right? And then they would track doctors, and essentially, if they were doing something else, right, they would kind of go back to them and say, well, why are you doing this? Um, is it just because this is the way you've always done it? Yeah. Uh, or was there some other factor that led you to do some other treatment? Um, and they would still leave it up to the doctor what to do, but if the doctor was doing these other treatments and not getting good outcomes, mm-hmm. they essentially were told to conform or they would have to leave, right? So just trying to institutionalize that the you know, what's known as best practice would be the first thing you would do mm-hmm. unless your experience and circumstances warranted otherwise. Yeah. And they've had great success kind of on on the quality of care metrics. But the other thing that this guy did was say, I need to know what my costs are. Mm-hmm. Because sometimes there's multiple treatments that are just as efficacious, <laughs> to use a big fancy word. Um, but one might cost a heck of a lot more, mm-hmm. right? Or, you know, the surgeon can go in and use lots of different tools to get the surgery done. Some of them cost a huge amount more than others, yeah. right? I was just reading a, a case earlier about, you know, they, they, uh, they were doing bone cement. So I guess they were doing some surgery, I think knee replacement surgery, and they needed cement. Mm-hmm. And the standard generic cement worked fine, sometimes you needed to put some antibiotics on it. So when they're mixing the cement, they would just pour the antibiotics on it. But they found out this one surgeon, for whatever reason, was always using this super expensive cement where the antibiotics were pre-mixed in, uh-huh. right? So, so yeah, it's a little bit easier, but they could do it on their own. And mm-hmm. you know, it was literally the difference of cost of like five times. For um, just a little bit of stirring. Yeah. So anyways, this company, to get back to Intermountain Health, they spent, they went through and they went through this excruciating detail trying to figure out their cost worth. Having people track down how many minutes did it take to do this? You know, how much chemicals did you use for each blood test? How much mm-hmm. glassware was used? And they spent a couple years on this. And in the middle of it, there was this Wall Street Journal article about it. And the guy's saying, it's gonna cost me about 300 million to do this for the system. Whoa. He says, once I have it, if I can use it to figure out what to do and what not to do, I'll make it back in a year. Wow. Right? <laughs> Is he accurate? Uh, I, I've i tried to figure that out, but I, <laughs> I, I don't know, right? But but given my experience with other companies and, and other cases, I wouldn't be surprised. Um, because 
you know, especially for these hospitals, it was it was like trying to fly a plane blind with no instruments, right? Mm-hmm. Or just a stick. And now you've like spent all this money to computerize the cockpit. Yeah. And then you're like, hey, <laughs> I can actually do stuff. How does that sync up though with you would say most patients are like Whew, that was hefty that was pricey and then the hospital being like we're probably losing 300 million dollars a year where where would that go well i think that's kind of part of what this type of information can illuminate where do the resources go because uh-huh. now you kind of have some idea well this goes to doctors and this goes to nurses and facilities but you can't drill down are we losing money on the pediatrics or the maternity or cancer care mm-hmm. you don't really have an idea of kind of what's pulling its weight or, or not and i think the other thing to remember is that because there's almost no accountability right it's really hard to get people to cut costs and be efficient Mm-hmm. And so I think there's just a ton of waste, like that cement example I was saying. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you read these horrific articles about throwing away lots of equipment because they just <laughs> needed one little thing, but but it all comes together. So I think that if these healthcare systems got, you know, even a couple steps into this process, they'd sort of realize, hey, we're literally just throwing away money on all these areas. And if we could just redirect it to patient care, redirect it to research or, or someplace else, um, you know, we could get rid of a lot of these costs. Mm-hmm. But until you kind of know what's going on, you have nowhere to begin. Is So with your class, is this just something you're interested in or do you, are you guys kind of actively, is that a, a place or a role you'd like to fill, have them fill? Um, kind of both. So. We, so especially this executive MBA uh, that we have at WP Carey, we've been moving into kind of having a specialty on healthcare. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's kind of one of the optional tracks you can take. And so I, as part of that, I've been bringing in kind of more articles and some cases that deal with healthcare. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, I hope, you know, the students that are either already in those areas or who may want to move into it can kind of take some of these ideas and go forward. Cool. Um, and certainly have had, you know, some feedback from students where, you know, what, what's nice about this executive program is that they're working full time mm-hmm. and they've probably worked for somewhere between 10 and 20 years on average. So they're, they're at positions where they can actually do stuff. Yeah. And so literally sometimes they'll come back on, you know, we'll teach Friday, Saturday, they'll come back the next time and say, hey, I did this. <laughs> right? And it's, you know, it's working. And I remember one guy who worked uh, in the labs at a hospital was like, oh, I just figured out how to save 70,000 bucks. Right? Is this like using an Excel <laughs> spreadsheet or how does it happen? So we just sort of realized this, this was a case where, remember we were talking about earlier, like, the surgeries taking up different amount of times mm-hmm. and this constraint and so he sort of realized that there were certain tests that were taking up a large amount of kind of this constraint that was a particular testing machine mm-hmm. um, and weren't bringing in much revenue and he said we could actually outsource those ones right and bring in some other tests that we had been outsourcing and use up that freed capacity ah. and the net savings he said was about 70 grand Wow. I think that was a quarter or something, right? So you sort of think about that. Just one little idea. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, if you kind of project that out, that's like a half million savings, right? And you kind of keep applying some of this logic. Yeah. Um, 
you know, you can find out these areas where you're kind of doing the wrong thing. Mm-hmm. Or equally, you can realize, you know, I said earlier, like some of these other things, wow, we're really good at this. <laughs> but maybe we didn't think so before, mm-hmm. right? But now that we kind of see some numbers that we might believe in, wow, yeah, we do have a specialty in this. And, and a lot of it is because we're really good and quick and efficient at it. And we can do a lot of them, mm-hmm. right? And so, it, it, you know, these, these cost analyses, they just kind of shift costs around. They say, actually, it should be more on this procedure than that procedure. But once you see that, then you can say, all right, definitely things are going wrong over here. Costs mm-hmm. are way too high. But over here, like, we're doing great. Let's take advantage of this, right? Mm-hmm. Um, Which you would so think it shows you where to expand. And that's true in, you know, any business out there, not just, just healthcare. Yeah, so I was going to say, I mean, you can, to me, the most literal interpretation was, we're putting all this water in this soil, and these crops aren't coming up. Whereas over here, minimal water, and it's working. Let's, let's figure out how to put more land space devoted to this. Exactly. Exactly. So cool. that's kind of the way to think about it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and, and if you really track these things and manage them, right, you can, you can really drive a lot of costs out. So I don't know if you follow this, but there's this uh, cardiac surgeon in India that has started a, a number of hospitals. <laughs> That'd be so weird if I was following this. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> really? Doesn't everybody? <laughs> I'm big into cardiac surgeons in India. I know yeah. all of them. So essentially, he, he realized that there was a, you know, Tremendous unmet need, right, as you could expect in India. Um, and people who knew they needed cardiac surgery, they just couldn't afford it, mm-hmm. even at the, the much lower rates that were there. And he said, well, part of the problem is just, again, we've got these expensive facilities, but we're not, <laughs> we're not using them enough. Mm-hmm. And so he really focused on saying, basically, it's, he's sometimes called the Henry Ford yeah. of, of India. and. And essentially, he said, let's just keep these guys working 24-7, right? That was his plan? <laughs> well, not the same surgeon, right? <laughs> but, but essentially, everything is geared up to maximize the number of surgeries yeah. and essentially to minimize the costs associated with each one. So, for example, the surgeons just do the surgeries. Mm-hmm. They're not doing any of the prep work. They're not giving them the, here's what's going to happen. Yeah, and here's yeah. what you should do afterwards. It's like a pitcher out of the bullpen. You Get know, in there, there's, do there's it. There's other people who can do that mm-hmm. that are much cheaper than a surgeon. Yeah. And so the surgeons kind of do what they need to do to get ready to perform. Excuse me, I have a question about my, I'm done. I've, I, <laughs> exactly. You're wasting like, all this money. You may never meet the surgeon, mm-hmm. right? And he'll hire top-notch surgeons, right? And pay them probably what they'd be paid in the U.S. So it's mm-hmm. not just a labor cost advantage. But I'm trying to remember the exact numbers. Like they'll do thousands of surgeries a year. Where even at a top cardiac hospital in the U.S., they may do a few hundred a year. Mm-hmm. Right? Rare. So if you think about that, and they're doing them early in the morning, late at night. You know, the hospital's running 24-7. So it's not just, oh, we'll perform two or three surgeries a day. It's we're going to perform 40 a day. There, there was, um, and their outcomes, by the way, are just as good. 
I was going to say, my girlfriend always references this. Um, it was sort of a study, I guess. You guys just said, we're going to see how this goes. Come in, and they had three groups of people. One group, they said, we're going to make pots, make pottery, make it whenever you feel inspired. The second group, it was like, you, you have to make uh, one a day. The third group, it was like, just make as many as you possibly can, even if they're bad, just churn them out. And it was the third group that by far got better at it, just from doing it repetitively. So I, I, would, assume, I would assume that correlates to nearly everything, including surgery yeah that's learning by doing right mm-hmm. and that's been a mainstay of you know management and strategy is you do things more you're going to figure out how to do it mm-hmm. more quickly and at less cost and so these surgeons there's never a complication that they haven't seen a zillion times right because mm-hmm. they just see so many and yeah. they get super quick and good at it and 24 hours you know that's... and because they're so big then they can use that size to negotiate much better deals on equipment. Mm-hmm. Um, they know exactly rather what they than need. throwing stuff away. They'll just sterilize it and use it again. Yeah, um, all these other things, and so they can offer cardiac surgery for I think a few hundred bucks. I like it. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of mind blowing when you think it's probably a hundred thousand here. And part of that is just we've got these incredible resources, incredible doctors, and, and machines and things like that, but they're just lying empty most of the time. Mm-hmm. Right. And it's it's such a waste. And because they're lying empty, when you actually use them like the empty hotel rooms, that's that's when they charge huge amounts. I was um, I was doing this kind of little exec ed program that uh, WP Carey does for the Mayo Clinic. Mm -hmm. And they were uh, talking to some of them and, you know, in class and, and they had just put in two new proton beam accelerators whatever you call them uh i guess i think they're for prostate surgery or cancer um and i said oh those are probably pretty expensive right because these are really cutting edge uh pieces of equipment they said yeah i said so you put in two right are you full are you busy Mm -hmm. oh no not at all yet we're still sort of busy (laughs) enough and i I said just think about that i mean if you're running at say 20 percent capacity right Mm -hmm. sometimes you're charging for Four empty rooms yeah. anytime someone stays in the one room, right? And when you have such high prices, then of course the market's slow to develop. Mm-hmm. Only super rich, rich people with uh, prostate cancer <laughs> will, are able, not willing, I would say, are able to pay that. And yeah. So, you know, it really changes the way you think about managing the business once you kind of see it this way and you have the numbers to back it up. And so what I try to emphasize to my students and, and people go through my courses, you know, th- this won't give you the answer, right? But it's going to let you be a manager sometimes mm-hmm. for the first time. Because once you see things in some sense through this economic lens with the right cost numbers associated with it, then you can kind of do what what managers should do and figure yeah. out how to make things better and say, oh, hey, you know what? We've got all this extra capacity that's costing us, you know, a million dollars a year for these proton beam things. Hmm. How are we going to use that? Yeah. Right. As opposed to, wow, our costs are really high. Mm -hmm. Uh, and so do we, you know, advertise, do we go make alliances with other hospitals to, to treat their patients at our place? Yeah. You know, what are we going to do to sort of, get over the fact that we're wasting a million dollars a year. <laughs> right? It's weirdly intuitive sounding. I mean, and, but the, Lots you of mentioned like the is, lens, right? but, but knowing where to look it. and how, and that, and the innovation of the guy of being able to 
wait a second, what if we, and I think like all the CBS medical shows are that, he sees things so differently. And <laughs> being able to come in, we're doing, we're throwing them in ice cold water, that's our move. Or I think in, I think it was Blink, the Malcolm Gladwell book, where like this hospital in Chicago, people were dying because so many people came in with heart problems. They had to examine all of them and these long lines were forming and they finally just went, let's go with three main criteria and if these aren't met, we're sending them home. And people be like, but I'm gonna die. And they go, you gotta go home. And then they found out like they were able to see more patients. They were saving more people. The people that went home had very low rates of actual death. And uh, those are difficult decisions to make, but that's still kind of an economic like, okay, we have to make that. We have to look through these and apply these parameters and then see what, see what our returns are. So if you go to these yeah. hospitals and say your manager's wrong, that could be pretty bad for them. Right? Yeah. No, that, that's a good point. Right. And Again, it's it's kind of thinking about it as if you were a business, right? Because a lot of these hospitals, or certainly the doctors who end up running these hospitals, don't have that training and don't have that mindset. Mm -hmm. And so, I think if you think about that, your you know economics to me is is really about trade offs, right? Mm -hmm. And opportunity costs, right? If I can see these patients at the front of the line, then I can't see the patients at the back of the line, right? Until it might be too late for them, and so. You know, you're trying to come up with enough data to make that trade-off in a good way. Yeah. Uh, as opposed to, oh, you just happened to come in 10 minutes before this other guy, but yeah. you don't need it, and he does. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I, I kind of get a chuckle at some of these uh, healthcare debates in the U.S. where, oh, you know, because I lived in France for <laughs> five years, which is consistently ranked as kind of having the best healthcare system Someone was uh, just talking to the other day said <laughs> like, they were there, and they went in... It's just a stranger, just a foreigner. Yeah. They went in and said, like, I need to get, they got to check up blood tests, x-rays, and had to write a check for like $38. Yeah. And they're like, sorry to charge you so much, but you, 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 know, you don't live here. Yeah. And that to, is, that's almost like a fairy tale here to hear something yeah, like that. Yeah, it sounds incredible. I mean, remember they would have a, uh, my daughter once, uh, we thought she'd swallowed some piece of plastic or something. and. Mm-hmm. Anyway, <laughs> ah, you know, take her to the uh, the emergency room and, uh, you know, they check her out. I think they might have done an x-ray and then no, she's fine, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the bill was like 80 euros, right? <laughs> Less than 100 bucks. Um, once she had a fever in the middle of the night, mm-hmm. right? You, They have this service and it's not even covered by your insurance, right? This is like a private group. Yeah. Um, and you can call a pediatrician or a doctor for yourself. And they come in the middle of the night and it's just 70 euros. Mm-hmm. Boom. <laughs> <laughs> Someone comes, checks you out. They probably write a couple of prescriptions and... But I mean, That's you, so you couldn't even get someone to come to your home in the US, let alone for, yeah. for 70 bucks or something like that. Um, so, so anyways, the, the system, you know, it takes money, right? And you pay it kind of through your taxes. But once you have that, everyone has access to it, and it's um, everything's up front, right? Mm-hmm. So what it is is the government provides the insurance, but a lot of the providers are private. Okay. So I saw a private doctor, and because he spoke English, <laughs> but but you call them up and you say, okay, I want to come in for this appointment. How much will it be? Mm-hmm. Oh. I charge this, yeah, right? <laughs> As opposed to you try to get something done here and you have no idea what it will be. Yeah, I remember we moved here and my wife needed to take the kids in for some booster shots and things like that. And she called in and, you know, well, what will it be? Ah, oh, we don't know. Well, here's my insurance. 
we still don't know. <laughs> right? Because, you know, you, you kind of figure out, are they in-network or out? But, you know, what are the copays? And then there's limits and there's all this stuff. Yeah. It's incredibly complicated. In France, I would go into the doctor, he'd do his thing, and then I'd have a basically like a chip-embedded credit card. That was my national health insurance card. And I also had private insurance that would pay, you know, top up whatever they did mm -hmm. on certain things. And so he just put that card into his computer. He'd have the, you know, fill out the quick form what the diagnostics were. One charge would go off to the government electronically. You'd be reimbursed electronically. The other would go to my private insurance. And he'd say, you owe me 10 bucks, <laughs> right, or 20 euros. And then you were done. There was no Man, more paperwork, nice. no more FSAs, no more, you know, yeah. complicated things. It was, honestly, it was fantastic, right? Mm -hmm. uh, but then, you know, you'll hear the debate here. Oh, we don't want something like France, right? Oh, we don't <laughs> want, um, you know, you have to wait a long time or you think like that. Well, what France doesn't have that we do, though, is a significant obesity epidemic, I mean, we, we have like, we don't walk anywhere. We, and we yeah. allow our food companies to put so much sodium and things in and no regulation on that. So I, I do think we're operating at a, just at a different field. No, that's true. That's true. But, but you know, when they talk about, oh, we don't ration healthcare, right? Mm -hmm. But I mean, how long does it take you when you try to call in and get a, a doctor's appointment, right? Yeah. I mean, it can take months. They found... And so that's rationing, right? Yeah. Whether it's the government, you know, sort of rationing or the insurance companies rationing, you know, it's still there. And so to try to just sort of say, oh, it's this boogeyman of, oh, government systems, you can never get treated, you know. There may be problems in certain countries versus others, but that's not, you know, we experience the same thing. We just don't sort of see it, right? Instead yeah. of a, a, quote, government bureaucrat deciding what my health care is, right? We have a private <laughs> insurance executive whose, you know, bonus depends on how little care they can provide you. They make the decision on what's covered or not. So, mm -hmm. you know, they're... Uh, that's what I was saying earlier. A lot of the incentives in this healthcare system are just kind of screwed up, and I think it leads to a lot of this, you know, egregious pricing and and but also wasted resources. Well, I would, and this might be real far, but my limited knowledge of maybe how the evolution or escalation of economics and all the fringe elements that are involved you know, from say an agrarian society where like i build houses and i raise the chickens and i do this and everyone's kind of this is a, a service i provide and and then to sort of mirror that with the drug trade currently like the illegal drugs now just, so like they make their drugs and they have to assume all these costs that if a truck gets busted by the feds or whatever they go well we lost that whole shipment but there's no no one you can complain to it's just you're out and there's you, no insurance there's no insurance it's just like well we'll have to re retaliate against someone and if it's the government then there's really nothing we, we just eat that cost and we try to find a new route to take and on you go and then if it were legalized, say even like cocaine or something, now you're having to like all these permits, all these legal things. We've got to hire X amount of security people. Our drivers have to be licensed this way. And you start involving all the things that just make it so hard to 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 really uh, calculate all the costs into it, as opposed to like, oh, we got that guy. He sells it. This guy drives it. <laughs> we grow it. And so when it grows from this agrarian society of my job, your job, this job, very few things are like that now. Everything's kind of is publicly traded and there are investors and people speculating on it and so how i mean 
healthcare being a big part of that, insurance companies, everything involved in it, is it just going to, once you guys narrow this part down, there'll be some new thing? Hard to tell. <laughs> <laughs> no, because in some sense, the money is so huge in, in this sector, right? Mm-hmm. But anytime there's potential to game systems uh, or do things like that to make money, pe- people are going to try. And it's mm-hmm. it's kind of a matter of, you know, how much can you contain it? But yeah. uh, you bring up the examples of the drug trade. I mean, I find this movement toward legal or semi-legal marijuana pretty fascinating, right? Mm-hmm. Because again, just to look at kind of the economics of it. And um, I get some of this because um, one of my uh, students, and I have them write a paper like on their own company. Mm-hmm. And she wrote it on her husband's who runs a dispensary yeah. <laughs> around here. And if you sort of think about it, the illegal drug trade, right, is characterized by risk. Yeah. Right? I mean, risk of going to jail, risk of dying, risk of <laughs> getting your shipment caught, right? And in some sense, you can think about it as the money they get is almost a return for bearing that risk, mm-hmm. right? And managing it. Yeah. Uh, if you can think about that, right? And, you know, I've seen some studies and, and the low level drug dealers, right? They make almost nothing. They make below minimum wage. And they're taking so much risk. And and they're taking risk. But if you can rise up, mm-hmm. uh, that's where you start making the money. And so in economics, they call this tournament theory. And so tournament is essentially a contest where at the lower levels of the contest, people are working much harder relative to what they're getting paid, right? So the company's able to, in some sense, exploit them. Yeah. But they're willing to do that because if they make it to the top, right, become a CEO or something, then they're getting these huge outsized pay packages. So it's kind of like I'm, I'm working really hard to get a bunch of lottery tickets. <laughs> and if I, if I win that lottery, I am totally set. Yeah. So I'm willing, in some sense, to, to make the bad investment in lottery tickets because I know there's this huge potential payoff, right? And so that seems to be how a lot of the illegal drug trade is sort of organized. And I think, from what I know, it fits in very well with this sort of economic idea of of tournament theory, right? And then you switch it to this, you know, medical marijuana, Mm -hmm. and you still have some risk, right? Jeff Sessions and the the feds (laughs) and people like that. but the risk is so much less compared to the illegal drug trade. But then because it's regulated, you have all these additional costs, yeah. right? So you're, you're getting rid of sort of the cost of risk, but then you're bringing in all these other things because you've got all these rules to follow. Um, and then you have a lot of difficulty because you have cash. <laughs> I was just going to say that. You have to, it's like a, 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 right, a split down the middle between the two. It's the old West because the government could come shut you down and yeah. seize all of your bank money. So yeah. it's, everything's in cash. So you have to hire like gun guys to yeah. protect it. But then all the regulation like you were saying. Yeah. And even I, I think, you know, very state by state, but for alcohol, right? There's a huge amount of regulations about who's licensed to distribute and mm-hmm. rules they have to follow. A lot of them are very sort of anti-competitive yeah. right, that drive costs up in the, the distribution channels. But they do have, you know, lots of these expensive rules to follow. Um, and so it's not as bad as it is for obviously the, the medical marijuana trade, but it's, you know, there there's a lot of extra costs built into that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, but then the risk of course is, is much lower. And so it's kind of an interesting spectrum right from relatively safe but kind of high costs 
to you know super high risk <laughs> and relatively low cost yeah um the tournament theory i mean really you could use that to describe america at, at large <laughs> i mean really the people at the top who've won the game I, yeah. I i and i don't know that i'm jokingly saying this i think once you become a family that's worth billions and billions and especially if you inherited the money I really feel like it would help capitalism if those people had to just at the end of the year submit how they plan to use the money. <laughs> and if they didn't have like a space program in mind or a movie studio or something that large, like, all right, well, we're going to reinvest this just into the country. You still get to keep a billion of it. You're good. <laughs> and no one would ever go for that. But they didn't. Because you're just a socialist. <laughs> it's very. But I've, I, I feel like there should be a better term that's like a productive middle capitalist socialist thing which we are as a nation yeah. and we have social security well, so we, we used to be much more like that i mean uh you know if you go back you might be old enough to remember reagan oh but, yeah, you yeah. know he'd be joking oh i got this big movie role and they took 90 <laughs> percent right mm-hmm. we used to have incredibly high marginal tax rates um yeah and it really was this idea of in some sense you know i think society in some sense has allowed you or the conditions such that you're able to go earn that much and in some sense this is sort yeah. of payback well I like right? Robert Reich I like his and I feel like uh, Paul Tudor Jones his outlook on the corporate profits versus wages that was right that was the 70s but I think Reagan really escalated that with lowering the that tax on the the highest earners yeah and that seems like that seems like a tournament theory to me that the people at the top went let's change the game just a little <laughs> yeah so i would say you know when we think about tournament theory at least economists think about it right it's the you know in some sense the owners of the firm or the board of directors saying hey rather than in some sense you know pay everyone sort of what would be appropriate at each level in the corporation mm-hmm. uh which may not involve as many incentives to work hard. We're going to set up this tournament theory. And the goal is that at the end of the day, we're going to get kind of make the most money. In yeah. Sense. But in society, right, it's sort of like, well, maybe we've sort of set it up. But the rules of the game in some sense get subverted, right? Mm-hmm. Because the the wealthiest people, again, can avoid what what little <laughs> the, what what their small you know relatively small taxes should be compared to other countries companies are able to avoid paying it they're able to get regulations that help them or, or hurt their competitors and so it's not you know all this you know economic theory is, is kind of in this kind of pristine world where people aren't cheating yeah that's right you in capitalism you can't but in societies right the people with these resources in some sense rig the rules in their favor and one could call it cheating or not but you know so so the tournament so the tournament kind of is a nice thing because it can lead to better outcomes but if you're able to subvert the rules my guess is then it's just going to create worse outcomes and so (laughs) some of these redistributive schemes are in some sense uh, one could think of them they're probably not intended this way as you know, a way to sort of catch up and penalize um, some of these these games. So well, I know in people... France, by the way, they have a wealth tax. Mm-hmm. So anything over, I don't know, 700,000 euros or a million euros in wealth, you're supposed to pay a, a certain percentage of that. Mm-hmm. Well, of course, then, uh, you know, <laughs> there's the huge incentives to hide, hide your wealth <laughs> or understate it. Yeah. But, but again, it's this idea of that if it's just sort of sitting there, um, you know, in some sense, let's make it more directly productive for society as a whole. Yeah. 
I mean, I guess if I make a billion dollars and people wanted to take it from my children and they were just laying around on a yacht, I'd be like, hey, I've worked hard for that. They should get... But I would totally... People that hate socialism, and I don't know how I feel about it. I think right. in socialism, you can't make people work. In capitalism, you can't make them be honest. <laughs> and we were never going to reconcile those two things. But the things that people seem to hate, your classic, like, hey, I didn't work so hard so some other person could get my money. Right. That's fair. But this person that inherited it, they're not working at all. So let's read in the bottom end at the tournament on the gaming floor are working so hard and just barely getting by. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I'm sympathetic to that. And, you know, it's all these people who are, again, you know, some of these hedge fund guys who are literally making more of a billion dollars. Oh, I work harder than anyone. <laughs> like, I, I'm sorry. The, the, the guy, you know, who used to come here and work in the yard and clean the house and he's working seven days a week in the hot sun. Yeah. He's working harder than you are, <laughs> right? Uh, you may be spending long hours behind a desk or something, but, mm-hmm. but come on. You are not, in some sense, adding that much value. You... You right. know, are are total beneficiary of, of certain set of circumstances and sure you're working hard and you may be creating value and you should get a you know rewarded for that but you know at, at some point if we said instead of making a billion you would only get 500 million mm-hmm. they would done exactly the same thing <laughs> right um so it's not like they're not gonna create any fewer jobs because you know that that bit at the top is missing i would say yeah um you know, if I make a billion dollars, <laughs> but I think, you know, at some point people are like, I have to pay, you know, $400 million in taxes this year. Like, you know, I think the mind sort of boggles at that, yeah. but you know, the, the whole system that let you do that, right. From the SEC and the stock exchanges and, and capitalism and, and agreements with other countries. So money can flow back and forth and trade go back and forth. That's what created the conditions so that you could, in some sense, take advantage of those circumstances. So to say, like, I did it on my own, right, is, mm-hmm. is uh, the height of hubris. <laughs> <laughs> but in the same way that you know all that stuff, and that's to me yeah. where I just think it is this very thin spider web that I can barely even understand where it starts, and I the, the all of it, the, how we determine interest rates, how we regulate loans and how we work with, we own a portion of our own debt, but then China owns a significant portion of it. And we're uh, the fluctuation. Yeah. And how do, how do the valuation of like the Euro versus the peso versus the dollar and the pound, how does that all train? How does the stock exchange work? Right. All of it just seems so bizarre to me. And when, if you understand it and then say that person that made a billion dollars understands it, I could understand that they could say, I earned this. I know all the rules and I was able to work my way through. Maybe. Took some risk. Yeah. All right. Risked with other people's money. (laughs) (laughs) Things like that. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, to, to go back to one of the things we first talked about, I think if people had some just more basic education about how these things work, yeah, it wouldn't be so mysterious. Yeah. Like, oh, exchange rates. Where, where does that come from? Or mm-hmm. what do interest rates do? And, and things like that. So I think it would take some of the mystery out of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, you know, myself, like almost all my investing, I just do low cost mutual funds. Mm-hmm. Right. Because even though I think I have a reasonably good understanding of what's going on and even through my research, might be able to kind of find some strategies that, that could maybe earn some money and stuff like that. 
It's like, that isn't my job. That's not my expertise. And I know if I go up and trade against these folks, I'm going to lose 99 <laughs> times out of 100, right? It's going like going to Vegas. And so why, why play that game that you know that's stacked against you? And I think if you people understood it more, um, I think they'd be much more willing instead of like, you know, like during the dot com boom and stuff, you know, mm-hmm. like get in while it's hot. Yeah, like but it's kind of that right now. Just or, no one knows blockchain what stuff, right? Mm-hmm. Bitcoin. I remember last, you know, December being at parties and uh, for Christmas, and people are like, "Oh yeah, I went bought some Bitcoin, <laughs> and yeah, it's up three hundred percent already." And, and yeah, all those things. Well, you know, no one talks about it now. That's down like sixty percent. Yeah. Um, but you just sort of, and, and if you want to do that because it's like gambling and you're sort of enjoying it and it's interesting mm-hmm. for you to do and follow, great. But if you're sort of thinking, hey, this is going to be my retirement, right? Or for some reason, you're better at understanding this rather complicated <laughs> and very easily manipulated market right? yeah. because it's not regulated like stocks, then, you know, that's just being foolish. Like to somehow think you're going to be able to do this better than than these professional sharks <laughs> that are it's out there. It's in a weird way slightly disappointing when someone like you has that sort of um, word of caution yeah. as opposed to like, you know, and I imagine the people that put together infomercials and stuff much much lower level of knowledge but they that confidence of like you could do what i did and you yeah. could own a yacht and whatever Trade else. currencies or buy gold or do yeah. all this other stuff yeah i mean i think you sort of have to realize you know how do they make their money and it's, it's off stuff. you <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right or you'll hear these uh, ads on the radio around here you know basically doesn't require any money buy these houses flip them make yeah huge amounts and i'm like I'm sorry, the, those opportunities, right, if they exist, go away really quickly, right? Because people just don't leave money. There are these on hilarious, the I don't know if you have these here, there's these hilarious signs. They're always tacked up to like a phone pole or a power pole in, or a stoplight yeah. in LA, and they're yellow and they're handwritten and says, Real estate investor seeks trainee. 15k per month and a phone number and i always just feel like you can't even afford a good sign guy how are you paying someone fifteen thousand dollars a month but i'm sure there's someone that sees that and goes Ooh, and calls it yeah. and that's how they make their money exactly <sighs> right and it's you know some some people do get lucky right they bought you know bitcoin three years ago and that's who you hear about but, yeah but you know Everyone gets lucky once in a while, but that's, you know, that's not, Did you ever <laughs> that's see? not a strategy. My <laughs> wife loves to say that. Hope is not a strategy. <laughs> but are you ever like beautiful mind style kind of watching the markets and seeing maybe legislation and going, oh man, I'm getting in on this right now and in exactly X amount of days, it should be here and we're getting out and then that's our <laughs> island that we'll own. Um, no. <laughs> <laughs> Dang it. Like, you know, you can see world events and things like that and say, oh, this will probably help these industries or hurt that industry or, you know, things along that nature. But most of the time, this information gets incorporated into those prices incredibly quickly. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's... it's. Um, now, I don't want to say, like, stock markets are perfectly efficient and we'll get off into a whole academic tangent on that, but they're pretty good on average, right? And... I remember reading this one study and they were looking at how stocks reacted to earnings announcements, right? Mm -hmm. And on average, 
right? It took seven trades for the stock price to move up to its new kind of average level. Hmm. That's like less than five minutes. <laughs> <laughs> so by the time you read that press release, right, on your Yahoo News or whatever, yeah. and you know, logged, logged into, into your account and traded, it's it's gone. <laughs> right? Come on, load up, boot up. The <laughs> and and this, was, this was like 15 years ago. I mean, now, uh, and there's been a lot of work looking at this, a lot of this is computerized, right? They have these bots and they will scan the press release the company puts out. Mm-hmm. And within a second, they'll have tr- basically using algorithms is this good news or bad news or, or whatever mm-hmm. it is. They've already traded on that. Like yeah. less than a second. You couldn't even read the headline. <laughs> so what percentage do you think of our done? market is currently operated by bots dictating all the ebbs and flows and reacting to like, oh, the corrections are off sometimes. Like, yeah. So, you know, if you... Th- I don't have it offhand, um, mm. but I would say probably over half of trades are made by these computerized algorithms, mm-hmm. right? And some of it isn't, isn't, you know, we found out some information about company X and we're trading on it, right? And and we're competing against people, so being closer to the exchange, so it takes less time for our signal to make it, right? Yeah. Those are people worried about milliseconds, right? But a lot of it is also, listen, I think there's a profit opportunity here, Right. I want to take positions that will benefit from that, but also hedge me from other risks associated with it. Mm-hmm. So they're going to do a huge amount of other buying and selling just as a hedge. Yeah. Nothing to do with kind of information about these things over here. And I think there's a tremendous amount of trading that goes on that isn't related to sort of specific information. Right. Man. But but to think that you could compete with that right Mm -hmm. it's just total hubris right (laughs) and so most uh there's great work of um by a finance prof at berkeley who was also there as a phd student when i was there and he was able to go in and get um one of these big discount brokerage firms to give him the information (laughs) right i mean it was a gold mine because back when he did this everyone still believed in these efficient markets and people were economically rational and things like that and so he had a great series of papers where he showed the more you traded the more you lost really yeah because Hmm. again these are people who probably had some early success they thought i'm good at this and whenever they lost money it was like oh it was due to this or due to that not because maybe i'm just not that good at yeah, it right yeah. um it's not but can you skill. really be good at it well precisely <laughs> well i mean think about trying something where it's actually just random but the first five times you win mm-hmm. you know playing roulette yeah <laughs> all of a sudden oh, i've got the gift i'm right? good at roulette <laughs> and so psychologically we're kind of set up to sort of think hey i'm good at this and i i'm going to discount any information that's not consistent with that and so we also found out like men on average Sorry about that. Men on average do worse than women, mm-hmm. right? Because men impulsive. are overconfident and they're more aggressive. And ah. that's not, as an individual investor, those are bad characteristics, right? That makes sense. So it was, it was sort of fascinating. And, and so again, I, I think I know enough to realize that other people know better than me, <laughs> <laughs> right? And so I should just kind of let the people who know what they're doing and specialize this. But to be... So, you know, from like getting a PhD and being around, being so familiar with mm-hmm. the the world's money system and then, but to not have, at least if you're 
uh, you know, putting on a good front and secretly have like a trillion dollars buried under the house. Like, you're good. But it doesn't yeah. seem like you have that American greed thing of like, you got to get in there and make more of this money and, you know, fac- take it's advantage not- of my knowledge. Yeah, well, I certainly want to, you know, maximize my retirement <laughs> yeah. and do that. So, I mean, I certainly in, invest and in, invest in real estate and, and other things, right? Mm-hmm. But I certainly don't think that I'm going to make money on professionals whose job it is yeah. and who have all the information and resources and experience, right? Mm-hmm. I just, I, it, you know, like I played football in college, you know, division one, double a good at what I did, mm-hmm. but that doesn't make me think that I could somehow go out and play on the Cardinals, <laughs> <laughs> even though they seem to need a lot of help. Um, you know, I, I know enough to know that there's better people out. That's and and I think it's, it, it's more of a, would be a naivete for someone to think, Oh, I can do this. It's not that hard. And, yeah. And things like that. Or, Oh, I, I read this article on, you know, whatever. I watched a couple YouTube videos. <laughs> I think I got it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And maybe you get lucky the first few times or something yeah. like that, but it certainly doesn't mean, um, you know, that consistently you're going to do better. So any, I won't keep you all day. I'll sure. wrap this up, but any, any financial advice for someone <laughs> that's, uh, maybe they've got no money and they're trying to get something to invest or say someone has a few thousand dollars like what would you say here's a good starting move just low-level mutual funds yeah so the first well the first thing i would do is pay off any high interest debt you have Mm -hmm. right so the last thing you'd want to do is invest in in like you know a savings account if you're paying 18 Mm percent or 25 percent on some loan or a high interest car loan right Mm -hmm. so you sort of think about if you pay that off you know, and the interest rate was 20%, you've just made a 20% return on your money, right? So that's probably the easiest kind of best thing to do right there. Then if you have extra cash, yeah, I would say put it away in some tax advantaged account, like an IRA or a Roth IRA, if your current, you know, tax rates are pretty low. And let, and as hard as it is to do, and I'm, you know, I'm not naive about this, if you can do that earlier in your life and you can let something compound for 40 years, yeah. it is so much better than doing it when you're 50 and it's going to compound for 15 years or something yeah. like that. So even relatively small amounts, you put it in these low-cost mutual funds, Vanguard, Fidelity, things like that, and don't look at it. <laughs> <laughs> like, like seriously, kind of put it in a, a well-diversified fund, either in the U.S. or an index fund or even internationally, and just keep doing that and don't look at it. Hmm. Right. The worst things that happened to individuals besides losing their homes in the financial crisis was that they sold. Mm-hmm. Right. So your the value went down by, you know, a huge amount. You sold. And then, you know, three years later, all of that had been made back up and more. Yeah. Right? You would have missed out on one of the best boom periods ever. And, and that's the thing. Almost no one. Right. Or certainly no one consistently can time the market like that. Mm-hmm. And so you just have to say, you know what, I'm retiring in 20 years. 30 years, whatever it is, just put it in and let it ride. <laughs> and, and that, and, uh, do you want, and you for know. most people that is, I think by far the best advice, right? Don't buy these like expensive insurance products and don't try to trade on your own and, you know, go out, watch Netflix, enjoy yourself. <laughs> let, let someone else do that. And don't get fooled by the siren song of little things like Bitcoin. Yeah. Or things that pop like up. that, that's a good way to end up with nothing. Nice. I like <laughs> when you it. Get old. 
So well, Steve, this is fantastic. Thanks a lot, man. No, really my pleasure. It. It's always fun to talk about stuff. At least you think you know about it. You definitely do. It's really uh, it's enlightening. So hopefully next time I'm back, maybe we can do it again. Sounds good. Cool. cool. Thank you. You bet. Well, I hope you learned a little something about the world economy and how to spend your money, should you be so lucky as to make some. And thanks again to Steve for being uh, just a delightful person to chat with and a wealth of information. I enjoyed it. I hope you did as well. Visit thespacecave.com if you have comments or suggestions, beers or music or guests in mind. You can also support the show through Patreon. Thanks to Dan for putting it together. I think you're a delightful group of people. Thanks for listening to the show. As always, you can rate it and review it if you want to do that. Here's some music from Los Halos called Daggerbones. Enjoy. Thanks for stopping by the Space Cave.